How are you guys doing this morning? Excellent. It's good to see you all. Um, as Aaron mentioned, we do have the privilege of starting into our, um, our Advent series this week. And so we're now in the second week of Advent, uh, which it starts traditionally that first Sunday after Thanksgiving. And so we, we really have this privilege uh, in the Advent season to uh, really, it's, it's a time of year where we're able to focus in on the story. I'm being told that it will now work. Let's see if we can do this in real time. There we go. Excellent. <clears throat> so yes, we are in our Advent series, and we have this, uh, this opportunity to really dig into uh, this season of, of anticipation. That's really what we see in the Advent season. Uh, as we uh, think about the time before Christ, uh, when we look in the Gospels, we see this time of anticipation. There's this this longing in the people for a savior to come, this promised savior that had been promised all the way back in the Old Testament. And for us today, we, we still find ourselves in, in a sense in this season of anticipation as we're on the other side of the cross, on the other side of Jesus's first coming. We now find ourselves anticipating his return, anticipating his, his second coming. And so it's such a unique time of year for us to really uh, be able to focus our minds upon the story of the gospel in a unique way. And, and the way in which we, we want to kind of tackle that this year in our Advent series is to really draw the line through the entire storyline of Scripture and be able to kind of walk through this, this thread of redemption, this thread of hope uh, that we see kind of present all along the way throughout the Scriptures. And so we're going to start today uh, with that said, all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. So if you have your Bible, if you want to go ahead and take that out, or scroll over to uh, Genesis chapter three. As I said, we'll be walking through this unfolding promise of a coming savior. And we're gonna see through this series that, that Christmas, that what we see taking place in the early chapters of, of the gospels uh, has always been the plan. Uh, that, that Jesus is not this sort of plan B, this sort of backup plan, but that even woven into uh, the narrative at the very beginning of the Bible, we see that there's a promise made that is completed, that is fulfilled in the person of Jesus in the New Testament. And so Genesis chapter three is where we find ourselves today. We'll be in verses one through 19. I'm gonna read that for us and I'll pray before we dive in. Genesis chapter three, verses one through 19. And it says, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. 
But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And to the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Father God, we, we thank you for this privilege that it is, Lord, to open your word together as your body, Lord. God, if we're here and we have professed faith in Jesus Christ, we are your people, your redeemed people, God. Those who who have benefited from the promise made even here in this page of scripture that we read from today, Lord. And so we come to you with, with grateful hearts, with thankfulness in our hearts, Lord, if that is us, God. And we thank you that, that you have been this promise-keeping God all along. Lord, would you make that clear to us this morning? God, would you, um, in, in every way, use this passage, Lord, to encourage us in the way that we approach this Advent season, Lord, that, that we would begin to even see the, the way in which it does kind of give us this unique opportunity to reflect on the good news of the gospel, Lord, and how firm and how steady the promises of God actually are, Lord. We thank you that you are one who fulfills every promise that you make, God. If it were not so, we would not benefit from it, Lord. We would not be those who are redeemed, God. And for those who are here and not not saved, Lord, who have not put faith in Jesus, I ask that you would use this word this morning, God, to, to draw them to yourself, Lord, that they would see that this hope that is held out even to our uh, spiritual ancestors in Adam and Eve, God, that this hope that's held out, that they would see that it's held out to them as well, Lord, that this coming one, God, is, is available to them, Lord. And so, God, I pray that this would be just a refreshing time of reflecting on the good news of the gospel, Lord. Use this time to, to build your church, uh, to strengthen us in our faith. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, one of, one of the best depictions of an idyllic place in, in all of literature, I think, is the Shire and the Lord of the Rings. Uh, some of you guys may be familiar with The Lord of the Rings. Maybe you've read the books or maybe you've watched the movies. Um, if you're not a reader, we're not gonna judge you for that. Um, honestly, watching the movies may be more difficult because uh, it takes about 13 hours, I think, to get through all of them. Um, but if you've ever engaged with this, you may have come across this, this place, the Shire. 
And what we see in the story of the Lord of the Rings is that the Shire is depicted as this idyllic place where, where every table is, is kind of full of food, where, where friends are always close by, where you, you seem to always have a fire on kind of nearby, and there's an endless supply of logs that you can keep throwing on the fire. It's this place in, in the story of the Lord of the Rings, it's this place of comfort and of rest and of peace for the characters. And I think Tolkien, even throughout the books, he does this great job of, of portraying this place where rest can actually be found. He, he does this great job of showing this place where, where all is right with the world. And he also does a great job of, of portraying this longing that we all have for home. There, there's this longing that we all feel, that we all experience for a place like that. And we see even in the story uh, that Frodo, this, this main character that presents himself, uh, he's, he's called out of the Shire, out of this place of comfort and rest. And he's sent on this journey to take, if you know the story well, to take the one ring to rule them all to Mount Doom where he has to destroy it. And, and it's this unique journey, this story, where throughout the course of it, he, he continues to encounter just terrible things at every turn. And, and there, it's terrible things both without and within, right? He comes across evil that he's never seen before, having grown up in the comfort and the safety and the rest of the Shire. He comes across uh, this terrible uh, kind of reality within as, as he's tasked with taking this one ring to rule them all that he finds starts to really in, impact his own heart. He feels this draw towards the power that he could possess if he were to take this ring for himself. Encountering terrible things without and within, and, and at this certain point in the story, he comes to this realization that he can't really ever go back to the Shire. He can't really ever go back, at least not as it was. Even if the Shire, this place of comfort and safety and rest hasn't changed, he himself has changed in fundamental ways. And there's this really tragic scene kind of towards the end of the third book, The Return of the King, where, where Frodo's completed his journey, he's accomplished this mission that he's been tasked with, and, and he now is, is turning his attention towards what's next. And, and he, he utters these words that, that just kind of resonate with me, and they just they sit on me in a heavy way. And this is what he says about the ability to go back to that place of comfort, of safety, of rest, of the Shire. He says, there is no real going back. Though I may come to the Shire, it will not seem the same for I shall not be the same. I am wounded with knife, sting, and tooth, and a long burden. Where shall I find rest? This tragic picture of him feeling as if there is no way for him to go back to that place where he once resided, that place of comfort, of rest, of peace. And we find too, I think, that we encounter many terrible things without and within in this life that make us realize that we, we can't really go back home without some help outside of ourselves. We realize that this way back home is, is treacherous and that it will never actually be reached without some help from outside of ourselves. We, in, in a very real way, like Frodo in the story, we've discovered that the world is in so many ways not as it should be. 
That in so many ways, the world is not as it should be. And it's not just something that we, that we see with our eyes. I want us to really catch the gravity of it. It's really something that we even feel deep down in our own guts. This sort of pronounced sense that the way that things play out in the world is not how they really should play out. That oftentimes we see that things are not as they should be. And, and I don't think this is tied to, to our, any sort of political vision or some sort of view of society that we might want or social preferences. It doesn't come down to us wanting to go back to some era that we think was simpler or anything like that. It really goes to a deeper level that when we look around at what's taking place in the world and when we look within our own hearts, we see so many ways in which things are disjointed and out of place. We see injustice we know sort of the, the, the evil thoughts that even reside within our own minds. We see that, that there is not fairness, that there is not peace when we look out in the world. And we sense this really nearly every day, I think, and in every corner of our own lives. And here's just a couple of examples. We can think of human relationships, which is something that's applicable to us all. And when we think about human relationships, these, these things which should be gifts, that, that should be opportunity for us to enjoy and delight in one another, they're so often filled with pain and estrangement. They're so often filled with strife. And when we think about uh, our work, another example, when we think about our work that we put our hands to each day, it can often feel as if it's futile. We can often find ourselves going about our work and yet having this sense that what we're putting our hands to feels meaningless at times, if we're honest. And then too, we see that we fall into sin patterns and we struggle to break free from them. If we're Christians, we, we think we have a sin taken care of. And then when we get down the road, we realize that it's right there and that it's ready to creep back in to our lives. And we find ourselves like Paul in Romans chapter seven saying, we don't do the things that we wanna do and the things that we don't want to do, we keep on doing and maybe even relevant to this holiday season, I think we see this, this reality of things not as they should be playing out in a couple of ways. We, we can often feel, I think, a profound isolation and even loneliness in this season that's supposed to be filled with joy and delight in the company of other people. We can find ourselves sitting around tables or sitting on couches and it being just an emptier scene than it was, once was because we've seen loved ones who have died. This sting of death is felt in an intense way at times around the holidays. And so what, what has gone wrong to make all of this the way that things are? What has gone wrong? We know that something has, and the scripture speaks so clearly to this. Here in Genesis chapter three, we see that sin has entered the world and we see that brokenness is now on full display. That human sinfulness and brokenness is on full display. We see that, that the tapestry of creation, it's, it, it is falling apart at the seams in many ways. And we as humans are filled with every sinful desire. But we have the key as to why that is. But we also have something more than that, which is this hope that we've had from the beginning. And we're going to see play out here in chapter Three. I think we can see the story of the Bible, and we'll see even throughout this series, that it's in many ways this tracing out of how things have gone wrong and how they might be put right again. And this story, it really, I think, begins to take shape in a unique way here in Genesis chapter 3. 
But, but to understand even what we see playing out here in Genesis chapter three, kind of in its fullness, I think we really have to understand the world as it was before the fall in its fullness. And I think no single word captures what we see playing out in, in Genesis chapter two. No word captures this situation before the fall in Genesis three better than this Hebrew word of shalom. This Hebrew word shalom, which maybe you're familiar with, it's this idea of perfect peace. It's this idea of, of wholeness, of completeness, of everything being in its right place. And it's this idea of, of perfect peace in a, in a way that's more profound than our own kind of feeble understanding of peace. Because where we would hear that, that idea of perfect peace and think that there's no enemy that comes against us, there's no hostility that we have to face, it's actually a, a bigger picture than that. It's, it's this idea of not just the absence of war and of strife, but it's the presence of all that is good. One, one writer says this about this idea of shalom that, that our forefathers experienced here in Genesis chapter two. He says, we call it peace, but it means far more than mere peace of mind or a ceasefire between enemies. In the Bible, shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight. Shalom, in other words, is the way things ought to be. It's the way that things ought to be. And this is, this is what was enjoyed in Genesis chapter 2. This is the, kind of the pretext that we have to the fall in Genesis 3, this perfect peace that there's no presence of strife or anxiety, that all needs are met for Adam and Eve, that there's no lack, that there's no deprivation. And, and even more profoundly, that, that they're experiencing God's presence fully, they're fully enjoying God's presence. We have this vision of them walking with God in the cool of the day. We see them enjoying God's creation in its fullness, that, that all of their needs are taken care of, that they're eating the fruit that's produced in the garden. They're taking care of livestock as God has tasked them to do. And then I think the crux of what we see in this enjoyment of shalom in Genesis chapter two is that they have unbroken fellowship with God. The crux of it, they have unbroken fellowship with God and subsequently unbroken fellowship with one another. And this is, I think, the, really the heart of, of this, the tragedy of what we see unfold in Genesis chapter three, is that this fellowship that existed between God and man, something is introduced to it that distorts it, that colors it, that, that really destroys it in a very real way. And so one, one writer, when he writes about uh, what shalom would even look like for us today, though we don't experience it, he's trying to help us understand what it would look like today. It's a guy by the name of Cornelius Planninga Jr., and it's in a book called Not the Way It's Supposed to Be. And he writes this. He says, if we were to experience shalom today, it would include, for instance, strong marriages and secure children. That it would include nations and races in this brave new world who would treasure differences in other nations and races as attractive, as important, as complementary. He says, government officials would still take office, but to nobody's surprise, they would tell the truth and freely praise the virtues of other public officials. He says, all around the world, people would stimulate and encourage one another's virtues. Newspapers would be filled with well-written accounts of acts of great moral beauty 
And at the end of the day, people on their porches would read these and savor them and call to each other about them. And above all, in the vision of the Christian, God would preside in the unspeakable beauty for which human beings long and in the mystery of holiness that draws human worship like a magnet. Shalom. This is the type of world that we ache for, that we long for, and that we hope for. We ache for and we long for the world as it was before the fall, before human sinfulness came onto the scene and made a mess of things. We want to go back to the Shire where we can find rest. And I think the Advent season primes us in a unique way to feel that longing. In many ways, it kind of serves as this microcosm of this longing that we have in this life as we wait for and we, as we anticipate Christ's second coming when he will restore all things. But before I get completely ahead of ourselves, let's, let's look specifically at these verses that we have before us. Let's, let's let it, get a closer look at how we got here, how we got to this picture of, of shalom being disrupted, of the world being broken, of us being wrecked, with sin. And so look there at verse one, where we see the seed of rebellion against God's rule. The seed of rebellion against God's rule. In verse one, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Right there, right off the bat, this question, did God actually say, that the seed of, of rebellion is planted in the mind of Adam and Eve. The seed of rebellion, the seed of distrust in the character of God. That's really what's at stake there in this question. That, that there's this idea that, that Satan wants to implant in Eve that in some way God is withholding from them. That though he has given them all good things, that though they experience this uninterrupted relationship and fellowship with God, this perfect peace that still in some way God is withholding from them. And he specifically seizes on this idea of him prohibiting them from eating from this one tree. God has set up his rule over Adam and Eve, and he's given them this one prohibition, which is not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And in verse 4, uh, the serpent, Satan, continues to sow this distrust by specifically focusing on that prohibition. And he says, the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die if you eat of this tree, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. It's so important for us to, to see what's really at play in the serpent's scheme here that it is in every way a, a mission to completely undermine Adam and Eve's trust in the goodness of God. And, and that's really even what we see play out in, in sinfulness in our own lives, that, that as we engage in sin, the same thing is at stake. It's often this distrust of God. It's this assumption that God is in some way withholding from us. And we'll get to this in a minute, um, that, that the the biblical witness is crystal clear about how much God has actually given to us. We'll get to this, this idea that in no way has he withheld anything from us. Well, look, at, look at this seed of rebellion. Look at what it's actually 
done. Look, look at the fruit that it's born for Adam and Eve. Right out of the gate there in eight through 10, we see right uh, kind of off the top that they experience first broken fellowship with God. That, that as they have chosen to take of this tree of the knowledge of good and evil, to, to transgress this one command that God has put before them, it has led to broken fellowship with God himself. That this picture that we once had of them walking with God in the cool of the day, enjoying his presence, it is no longer the case. They go from that picture of walking with God in the garden to hiding from his presence. They go from enjoyment of his presence to fear of his presence. And this is completely backwards from what they experienced under shalom as they had this perfect, unbroken fellowship with God. And so we already see the way in which sin entering the world is unmaking the world in a very real way. Secondly, we see another fruit that comes from this seed of rebellion being sown, and that's this fruit of a brokenness in the creation order. In verses 11 through 13, we see that, that the creation order as God has established it is completely reversed. Because as, as God has created, he's created Adam, he's created Eve, he's given them dominion over all livestock, over every living thing, over all the plants of the field. And he's clearly established this idea that, that the male is to serve as the head, as the protector, as the provider, as the one promoting the flourishing of, of his wife, Eve, and of really all things that God has created. And yet in 11 through 13, we see this completely reversed because we see that when Adam is approached by God, when he's confronted about them transgressing this one prohibition, Adam's immediate uh, inclination is to blame Eve. That as opposed to taking responsibility, as opposed to serving as this leader, as this head of, of his family, he blames Eve. And then it, it just keeps going down the line from there. We see Eve blaming the serpent. And, and so what we see playing out there is this complete reversal of, of even the creation order that God has set up for them. And then thirdly, we see a, a frustration of, of the cultural mandate. This third fruit of the seed of rebellion being sown is the frustration of the cultural mandate. If you remember back in Genesis chapter one in verses 28 through 30, God really lays down uh, kind of a picture of what he, he wants Adam and Eve to engage in as they serve as these um, representatives of him in the world. That they're to, they're to watch over uh, the flocks, that they're to, to care for the land, uh, to take care of it, to see that crops are raised up, that they're to be fruitful and multiply, that all of these things are given to them. And yet what we see in the curses that are passed down in these latter verses is that he addresses each and every one of those. And we see that frustration is now gonna be a defining feature of them attempting to carry out this mandate that God has given them. We see this in the curse on the woman in verse 16 where it's, it's told, she's told that she is gonna have multiplied pain in childbearing. That this command to be fruitful and to be multiplied is no longer gonna be an easy thing to walk through. That it's gonna be rife with pain, with difficulty. There's gonna be great frustration in engaging in it. For the man in, in verses 18 through 19, he addresses this call for him to care for the land, to care for all living things that have been created. And we see that frustration and futility are entering into the work 
that he is gonna put his hands to, that he's not gonna be able to just lay out the seed and see that a crop is raised every year, but that he's gonna have to do hard manual labor. And it's a frustration of work, which was set up as a good thing in chapter one of Genesis. And so the, the seed of rebellion has been sown and it has borne this bad fruit. These curses have been passed down. And we see that the world is, is in a very real sense being unmade. And so we really get to the end of verse 19. And even when we see that, uh, he, he mentions your dust and to dust you shall return. We, it's just a bleak picture. We, we see that, that even death is a frustration of the cultural mandate, that you will not be able to fulfill this in perpetuity, that there is an end date. And that's a consequence of this rebellion that you've engaged in. And so we have this bleak picture at the end of 19, and you're sitting there asking yourself, is this all gloom and doom? Or is there some good news here for us? And I think we have to look and we have to see that there is a, a seed of hope in the wreckage of these verses. That there's a seed of hope in the wreckage of these verses, and it's, and it's hope in a very unlikely place. It's hope in the unlikely place of the curse that's pronounced on the serpent. Look in verse 15. We'll read it again. It says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. What does this mean? This here is the first good news. This here is, is the first good news. In these verses, God is, is saying that there is one who is coming, that this offspring of the very woman whom you have tempted and led to fall, her offspring is going to be your demise. He's saying, yes, you have, I will acknowledge, you've won this particular battle, that you have led your people into rebellion or led my people into rebellion, but I'm going to have the last word that this offspring that is going to come from the seed of the woman is going to be the one who it says there is going to bruise your head. This is a, a profound picture of the good news. This is a, a profound picture of the, this coming one who is gonna crush the head of the serpent. This is God declaring war on Satan here in these opening verses of the Bible. And so what we see, even in this first good news, we see this prefiguring of Christ, that there is this one coming who is gonna do this work. But we also see too that God is, he's not one who is withholding, is he? That, that very uh, seed of distrust that was sown, that, that God was in some way withholding from Adam and Eve, we see that, that nonsense put completely to the side because we see here that, that he is gonna provide an offspring. And what we see later on is that this offspring is Christ himself. And we can think on even a verse like Romans 8:32 where it says that he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how can we not trust him to give us all things? We have this good gift giver in God himself. This profound picture of, of hope in this unlikely place that the gospel is being told even from the early pages of scripture, tucked away in this obscure place of a curse on the serpent. And I want us to see too that, that hope in unlikely places is really a theme that persists into the Christmas story. 
that we see hope in, in so many unlikely places. We see it in a manger and a backwater town in Israel. We see the God of the universe taking on human flesh and being born into obscurity. We see this seed, this offspring that's gonna crush the head of the serpent arriving in this out of the way town in the corner of a cattle stall. God in flesh coming to the world in humility. We see hope in the unlikely place of a cross at Golgotha. That Christ the Lord is dying in the most shameful way that one could die. But in so doing, he's bringing the light of salvation into a world under the cover of darkness. We see him at, at this cross in this unlikely place, undoing the unmaking of the world that entered into the picture with rebellion in Genesis 3 by dying in the place of those who have transgressed his law, by dying as the substitute for those who, who deserve to have to bear up under the wrath that was stored up for their own sin. We see hope as well, finally, in this unlikely place of an empty and of a borrowed tomb. That Christ himself, Christ the Lord, has overcome sin and death through his resurrection. That we, that we see in the empty and the borrowed tomb, this, this unlikely place, that Christ has fully defeated the serpent, fully defeated Satan, he declared war on him in Genesis chapter three and he has accomplished that. We see him at every turn subverting the expectations of his disciples then and of us now. Hope in all of these unlikely places. And so what, what do we do with all of this as we reflect this morning? I want us to see something simple that, and this can be an application for us that there is great hope to be had in the Christian story. That there is great hope to be had, that though things are not always as they should be, we can trust that they one day will be because we can see the way in which hope has threaded itself all throughout the pages of scripture and led to, to Christ in our place. We can see that, that a weary world can rejoice when they look to Jesus Christ in, in all of his shalom restoring glory. We can see here that, that weary Christians we might be this morning. We, we can rejoice even still as we take hold of the hope of the good news that we have even here in Genesis 3.15, that Christ was promised and that God is one who fulfills his promises. And so this is, this is the hope that we have in the Christmas story, that Christ has come, that he's shown that he has not done with this creation and he's shown that he's not done with you, that he's not done with me. We can see that he has dealt with human sinfulness at the cross, that he's overcome Satan, sin, and death through his resurrection. And we can see that he is up to something even now as we head towards the end of all things, when, when shalom will be restored, when Christ will come back, when he will make all things right. And the great news about this hope that we can have is that we've had it all along, laid out before us, if we would only take hold of it, that it's all been promised from the beginning. And so, unlike Frodo, it, it turns out that we really can go back home. Not, not to the Shire, but we can see this return to Shalom. Though we wait now, 
anticipating Christ's second return, we have every reason to believe that it is a certainty because God is one who fulfills his promises. And so my, my charge, my exhortation is, is that you would be filled with the hope of Christ in this season. Let me pray for us. God, we do thank you, Lord, that you are one who fulfills your promises, God. When we look in the Bible, God, we never have reason to fear that you will not come through, God. And I think we have that in its clearest form, in this sort of crystallized form here in Genesis chapter three, verse 15. God, that, that you from the beginning were making promises to your people that you had every intention of fulfilling, God. And so would we be able to go from this place this morning with a, a deep and an abiding trust in you, God? Having seen your character laid out before us, would we not like Adam and Eve fall prey to the seeds of, of distrust in your character being sown in our own hearts. God, keep us from that posture, Lord, from thinking that you were in some way withholding from us. No, God, we see in Christ that, that you have withheld nothing from us, that we have all that we would need in Jesus himself, Lord. And so would you, in, even in this season, be able to strip back at all of the things that we might pile on top of our own walk with you and be able to bring to our minds even just the, the essence of what it is to be a Christian, Lord, that we are united, united to this Jesus that was promised long ago. This Jesus was gone to the cross on our behalf. It was made possible the restoration of fellowship with God. And this Jesus who will come back and who will restore shalom, will restore this perfect peace where we did enjoy unbroken fellowship with you, God. We thank you for the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, Lord. Would it be life to us this morning? We want to lift high your name as we sing, Lord, and as we go from here. And so would you see to that being the case? We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.